the church of Smyrna will be mentioned a few times tonight listen out for it pick up and, and listen and then we'll, we'll maybe see something of the thread I'm trying to weave through this last week we, we looked at the spread of the church the early history we looked about what happened after the acts of the apostles what happened to the other the other disciples of Jesus where they went and we've seen how important it was that the gospel message was spread and it was spread not just by those men but by the faithful word of mouth and witness of so many who were touched by the message of Jesus and came to know him as their Lord and Saviour and we've seen how the church began to develop as well and, and this week we're going to move on and while I put up the dates AD 150 to, to 350 approximately they are approximate because I'm going to go a wee bit uh, earlier than that and look back a little bit and I suppose in one sense when we think about the early Christian church what we really tend to think about mostly is Christians being thrown to the lions you know that's the sort of image that we get we get this picture in church history that this was the time period when the Christians faced a lot of persecution and I guess that's the best way to start tonight is to think a little bit about the persecution that happened to the early church and we'll look at that and then we'll come back and look again at the, the way the church was uh, changing internally and the things that were, were happening to it as well. And in this passage that we just read, we, 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 we read about the focus there of the church that they were about to suffer. So, let's think about that. Maybe we need to think about, well, where did the persecution all start? Where was the first persecution? I'm going to really concentrate, I, I, I suppose, on what we would call state persecution persecutions that were instigated by emperors uh, and we need really I suppose then to go back to Nero because that's the first time that and one of the Roman historians Tacitus recorded this for us uh, when Nero decided to persecute the Christians what he did was he talked about how Nero the, the Roman historian talked about how Nero wanted to deflect the burning of Rome, which he is reputed to have been the instigator of, and in fact there is historical records of arsonists going around and lighting buildings. Apparently Nero had this great dream of building a new city for and naming it after himself, although he didn't last much longer after this. But then to deflect this, uh, what had happened, he blamed the Christians. He rounded a lot of them up, and he literally wrapped them in animal skins. And he hung them up on poles and he burnt them to illuminate games, gladiatorial games at night in the grounds in the, of his palaces in the amphitheatre. Others were torn by wild beasts. The persecution was severe. We, we, we looked last week and we seen how traditionally that, that this was a time when... Uh, when Peter was crucified upside down under Nero and when Paul was beheaded outside Rome itself and also the leader of the church the bishop of the church of Rome was also martyred at this time under Nero so this was in one sense the start of that but by and large although it was instigated by an emperor by and large it wasn't all over the empire and that's what we're going to see a little bit tonight we'll understand that at times there's one area of the empire was more affected than others and in this particular instance it was Nero 
And the problem is that if we were to spend time tonight to go through all of the things that happened and look at all, so many of the martyrs, uh, we just wouldn't have time. So I'm going to try and pick out a few interesting ones and a few of the more famous ones tonight for us to think about. And uh, then there were other emperors who also got involved in this persecution as well, following Nero. So following that, and this is this slide here shows five different emperors and the period roughly when they persecuted the church. And so we see Domitian, we see Trajan, we see Marcus Aurelius, we see Septimus Servius mentioned there. Last week we talked, I mentioned briefly the, the, the martyrdom of one man, Ignatius, under the Emperor Trajan. You remember he was sent to Rome and when he was on his way to Rome he wrote a few letters to the churches and eventually then he was martyred in Rome as well. And he was, Ignatius was one of John's, the Apostle John's disciples. So what Ignatius learnt was directly from John and of course John was recounting exactly what he had learnt from the Lord Jesus Christ as he travelled with him in those final days and months uh, leading up to Jerusalem. And John was also the witness of Jesus' resurrection and he knew the truth of it all. So here we're only sort of slightly removed and immediately one of the men here that has been influenced and, and has come to know faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through John, Ignatius, he's martyred. But there was another disciple of John called Polycarp. And Polycarp later on was to become the Bishop of Smyrna. So that's one of the, the times that we'll see it coming up. And he became the Bishop of Smyrna under the rule of Emperor Pius of Rome. And at that time the, the Christians weren't particularly badly persecuted. It was a quiet time for Christians. And uh, although there were some local uh, persecutions in some area. And then we come to the time of an emperor who's thought to be, well he was a pretty good emperor. The film Gladiator highlights him at the start of the film as he hands over uh, and he, he's looking, he, he has that reputation of being, that's Marcus Aurelius, he has this reputation of being a good emperor. And yet for some reason he didn't like Christians. Commodus' son on the other hand as we'll see in a moment was slightly different. But Polycarp was brought to trial during the reign of Marcus Aurelius because he instigated a, a, a persecution across the uh, Roman Empire against Christians and it was particularly strong in Asia Minor in Turkey and in the church of Smyrna was no less affected by it. And Polycarp's really made a famous statement and what he did was important in the history of the early church. Here's an old man, an old man coming to the end of his normal natural life and he's been a disciple of the Apostle John. He knew the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and what does he say in his trial? Eighty and six years I have served him and he, that's Christ, has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Saviour? He's sentenced to be burnt. And such is his death. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while it is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp went to the stake. And they lit the fires around him. But they were frightened. 
believe it or not, they were frightened that they, the fire wouldn't burn them. So they decided to put a sword in them as well. But it was, it was interesting because what happened was almost immediately the people who had seen this and they, they, just, they, they just said that's enough. The pro-council, the Roman pro-council, he says I'm not going to bring any more Christians forward for trial. And so the persecution in that area stopped almost immediately with the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. About 10 years later, though still under the same empire, it did start up again in, in, in France and in, in the, the other part of the western part of the empire. And strangely enough, though, following Marcus Aurelius, his son Commodus, who you thought, well, everybody, you know, you get the picture, Commodus was, well, he was a bit of a nutter, so he was, he was a bit mad. He fought in the amphitheatre himself. He liked to win. He liked to be the gladiator to beat the other gladiators. And he was a strange person, quite cruel. But he was totally ambivalent to Christianity and he didn't bother with it at all. He didn't worry about it. Because he, he just didn't believe in any gods at all. He only believed in himself. And so persecution for Christians died down a bit. But it wasn't long until another emperor, Septimus Servius, came along. And he wanted to try and stamp out Christianity. And this time the persecution was most severe in North Africa. And there's a famous record of a, per, of a, a martyrdom there. The martyrdom of two young ladies, Perpetua and Felicitas. And it's interesting because we actually have these on record. Uh, Perpetua was of a noble birth. And she uh, was a recent convert. And so was Felicitas and some others. Uh, They were all arrested. They were catechumens. They were preparing to be baptised. They were learning. They had accepted Christ as their saviour. And they were learning a little bit about the Christian faith prior to their baptism. So these were an easy group to round up. Young people, young Christians. Let's round them up and we'll try them. And her father was most insistent that she recant. He wasn't a Christian. And so he pleaded with her and pleaded with her to recant. And she said no. But she wrote down all the things that happened to her. Just coming up prior to her trial and eventual uh, martyrdom. And then she went on and uh, at her trial, her father came in again and, and pleaded publicly at her trial for her to recant and she still wouldn't. And not only that, her father got beat up for the trouble. The uh, prosecutor decided they'd had enough interference, so uh, he then uh, said, put her father out. But basically she said, you know, it will happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but we're in his power. And that's the stand she took. And Felicitas, her slave as well, would not deny Jesus. And they were put in the arena, and they were attacked by a wild heifer. They were hung in nets, first of all, while the heifer attacked them, and it didn't kill them. So then they were attacked by a leopard, that didn't kill them. And eventually then they had to be killed by the sword of the gladiator. So in the first 150 years or so of the life of the early church, there had been five periods, as we've seen that other slide a minute or two ago, five periods of imperial persecution, but more were to follow. More were to follow. And uh, some of these were more widespread than others. And I want to pick out a couple of interesting ones, a couple of interesting things that happened uh, during these periods of persecution. I want to pick out the one under Decius. It's an interesting thing that happened here. 
And um, we'll look at that in a moment. Christians were required to sacrifice to the gods under most of these persecutions. That's the way that they would be allowed to live. Make a sacrifice to the gods. But under Decius he decided to do something different. He said look you can sacrifice to the gods. That's what we want you to do. And when you do that we'll issue you a certificate. And that will say that you've done this and you'll be okay. But you know human nature being what it is. Decius had or Decius people that were um, carrying out his edict. They, had a, they, they saw a, an easy opportunity. And so they basically give a hint to the Christians, well, if you pay us, we'll give you a certificate. And that will be you done. You won't have to sacrifice. You'll just have to give us some money and get a certificate. And the next slide shows an example of this certificate. Uh, so it was. And basically it says on the certificate, I have always continued to sacrifice and show reverence to the gods, in a small g, and now in your presence I poured out an abation and sacrificed and eating some of the sacrificial meat. I request you to certify this for me. But of course you can buy this. And a number in the church did. They weren't prepared to sacrifice, but they thought, well, I can buy this, and in an indirect way, and it caused a big problem in the church. In fact, the Bishop of Smyrna was one of those, the leader of the church of Smyrna was one of those who purchased the certificate. And it caused a big problem in the Christian church. Not just then, but over the next number of years. When persecution stopped, these people were trying to get back into the church again and here then well now what's the response I wonder what our response would have been eh? some people well they were quite open about it look they, um, they've made a mistake, they've sinned, they've done wrong but let's welcome them back in they're, they, they're asked for forgiveness they're asking for pardon let's welcome them back in others weren't so certain and they said well no maybe they need to do a time of church discipline we keep them out of the church until we feel they've done uh, sufficient time as a penitent in a sense to, um, to be allowed back into the church and then there were the hardliners no you've done something that was against what our faith speaks for you should never be allowed back into the church and they, the group particularly uh, that did that were a group in Carthage in North Africa they were called the Donatists and we'll mention them again next, uh, next time when, uh, we're looking at this topic but these were the hardliners in fact the, the leader of the church in Carthage wrote a, a, an open letter almost to the church in Smyrna and publicly dressed down the bishop of Smyrna who had a copy or bought one of these certificates so there was a big problem internally within the church about how best to deal with that but you know we need to move on more persecution another period of calm and then we come to the what was almost the worst persecution I think and one of the reasons why our historical records have been so poor and that's the persecution that came under Diocletian around about AD 303 now Diocletian had been one of four emperors there was a over a period of about 25 years there were four people at different times maybe three sometimes two others but 
By and large, there were four different people ruling different parts of the empire. Diocletian had been a ruler, uh, an emperor, from about 284. So this is towards the end of his reign. And then, uh, in 303, he was encouraged by another emperor, Galilius, and he really said, look, let's do something about these Christians. Now, Galerius, he was influenced by his advisors, and they wanted to put the Christian church down. And he issued three edicts in rapid succession. And each one of those edicts was a little bit more severe than, than the other. Christian, first of all, basically, you were to, to sacrifice to the gods. That was all right. Um, that was what it had usually been. One particular high-ranking civil servant, as it were, he tore down the edict and uh, got into trouble for it, and it also then started off a chain of events. But as well as that, all the copies of the Bible were to be destroyed, all Christian writings were to be destroyed, and they were to be burned. Christians were to be deprived of public office, they were to be deprived of property, and of all civil rights. And last, the next edict then, all the leaders of the churches were to be rounded up and put into prison and tried. Well, the prisons were soon full of bishops, uh, elders, deacons, the leaders, the men that were perceived to be the leaders of the churches, they were, the prisons were soon full of them. But it didn't stop the church. So the next edict, a year later, all Christians have to sacrifice to the gods under penalty of death. And so a massive persecution arose. The jails were packed with Christians and hundreds upon hundreds were brought into the amphitheater and were killed. And it was really an awful, severe persecution. Now, some people have tied in the persecutions under these emperors in such a way they noted that there were ten periods of persecution and in our reading in Revelation it was talked about that you're going to be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation so some people have tied in that ten day period of tribulation with these ten imperial persecutions that came to its climax under Diocletian Well, maybe we need to pause here for a minute. And let's just break away briefly and sort of, we're still linked with it, but break away and ask ourselves a couple of questions. Ask yourselves a couple of questions. Why did the church face such opposition and persecution? Why did the, and how in the face of such opposition did it continue to grow? Let's think about this for a moment. Let's just take time aside from the history why did the church face such persecution after all what was different about Christians there were other plenty of faiths plenty of religions in the Roman Empire at the time and across the world at that time but I guess fundamentally if you think about it the reason for such opposition is of course the attitude of men's hearts men and women's hearts against the truths that were being revealed to them from through the church about the Lord Jesus Christ and about God the only true and living God the creator 
And it was seen in the lives, the truths of the gospel message that was preached was seen in the lives of the people in the early church. They were like light shining in darkness. Do you remember last week we talked about Pliny writing to Emperor Trajan? He basically says, look, the Christians aren't doing anything wrong. I'm only persecuting them. I'm only trying them because they're Christians. They don't do anything wrong. So I guess fundamentally it's man's heart is against the word of God and kicked back against it what was being revealed to them. Of course there are other historical sort of reasons as well. I mean in the Roman world the worship of God was inextricably linked to the state. That's the way religion was. If you didn't worship the gods you were seen as anti-state. As well as that, don't forget Christianity uh, was now becoming and standing up and standing alone and saying basically there's one way to heaven. And whereas up to now they all sort of was well it's you go your way, you go your way, it's all acceptable, you all worship the gods. But now the the message of the Lord Jesus Christ he's saying you know I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. That's the message that the Christians are spreading out as well and it didn't go down well Christians didn't fit in with society anymore they didn't go to the theatre where their plays tended to be crude and rude they didn't laugh at the same jokes anymore they didn't want to go to see the gladiators anymore and so on they were standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ they were light shining in darkness And of course, as well as that, a lot of people made their living from state religion or from the religions. There was an awful lot associated with idol building, idol making, with temples, with the building of temples, with the priesthood in temples, with all the unpleasant uh, things that were associated with that. So there was a lot of people, and that living was threatened. People's livelihoods were threatened indeed. And then... So if if that's why did the church face such persecution? Well, how in the face of such oppression did it actually continue to grow? I mean, think about it. Every 20 years or so, the church was being hammered. Christians were being martyred. They were being persecuted. They were being put out of their houses. They were losing their property, their rights, and everything. They were losing their jobs. Was it to do with that? Was that the only reason? Was this the persecution, the reason the church continued to grow? No, surely not. Surely the answer of why the church continued to spread and to grow was the message. The message of a loving God who sent his son to die for the sins of mankind. God, the only living and true God, the creator who had poured out his love and he poured out his mercy and he sent the son to die in such a way and whose son had displayed his power in the resurrection from the dead. God was at work in the lives of men and women. That's why in the face of such oppression the church beginning to go. It was the power of God working in the lives of men. As men and women told others about Jesus. The truth dawned on them. The light, their eyes were opened, they seen the light, they And they came and trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What did Paul say when he wrote to the church at Romans? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power of God 
unto salvation for anyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And that's still the same message that we preach today, isn't it? And that's why the church of God will continue to grow. Yes, it might seem slow in Western Europe at the moment, but it's growing rapidly in other parts of the, across the world. In the face of persecution, the church in China is growing. In the face of persecution, the church in Iran is growing. It's the power of God working in men's hearts. We need to see that that power of God is in our hearts and works in our hearts. I really trust and pray that all will know indeed that true and living God and, and believe in the one who died for them their sins. Following map actually shows the spread of Christianity. And uh, you'll see the purple areas there. And they were the area around about AD 125. And there's a bit of other places here and there. But by and large, that was um, when Arrhenius, who, were going, who came from Smyrna, and we're going to look at in a minute or two, that's when, where the church was. The green areas then show how over the next couple of hundred years, by AD 325, in the time of Constantine, Christianity had spread even further across the Roman Empire. Because finally the time arrived, after the persecution of Diocletian, that persecution basically came to an end. And it happened during the reign of Constantine. Uh, we know the story of Constantine, that Eusebius, the church historian, tells of the vision seen by Constantine. He's in a, a power struggle with others uh, for really the emperor's position in Rome. He approaches Rome with his army, he comes to uh, Milvian Bridge just on the outskirts of Rome and he has this vision before the battle, he sees a sign in the sky and by this sign conquers the vision that he's told he preached. He paints this sign on the, uh, and it's a sign of the cross or similar sign of the cross. And then he does conquer and he becomes a co-ruler. And in AD 13 with the Eastern Empire, he, he then they meet and they agree to stop the persecutions against the Christians and to give them and to restore to them all their property and their civil rights and their positions and all the rest of it. And all of a sudden the persecution stopped. And it sets the scene for Christianity to become the state religion in about 70 years or so time. It doesn't happen immediately, it doesn't happen, it's, it's after the death of Constantine that it really becomes the state religion. And as we see later on that, that that in itself will present its own problems and its own thing. But I want to go back then to, to that map that I showed and I want to just mention something again about another gentleman from the church in Smyrna and his name was Arrhenius and Arrhenius was uh, really he had been taught by Polycarp so he hears the apostle John has taught Polycarp and Polycarp has taught Arrhenius and Arrhenius is now going Smyrna is a, um, a port it's uh, the modern port of Izmet, uh, Izmir in Turkey so it's a port and it has a good trade rink apparently to Marseille in the south of France. And Irenaeus is sent westward to spread the gospel message from the church in Smyrna. And he goes and he settles in Lyon in the centre of France up the Rhone Valley. Lands in Marseille and travels up the Rhone Valley. And then he begins to send out 
missionaries as it were to small churches and find small churches around about in southwestern France and so uh, the gospel message is still being spread by faithful faithful people and I mention Arrhenius because he, he is important he wrote a number of uh, treaties against heresy that had crept into the ch- Christian church he even travelled to Rome to debate it and discuss it and he arrives there and he finds that the particular leader of the church in Rome at that time also has heretical viewpoints but also as well as that others were um, mentioning things that were happening. Do you know, it was interesting, one of the problems, one of the things that was said about Christians was that Christians were atheists. That was an accusation levelled by the Romans against Christians. They were atheists. And why were Because they had no building, they had no idol, they had nothing that they were seen to be worshipping. So they weren't really worshipping God. And so, um, so it's interesting the things that people began to think. And another early uh, Christian historical figure, his name was Athenagoras. And uh, Athenagoras is an interesting name because it sounds, it's, it's like Athens, right? And Agora is the marketplace. Paul preached in the marketplace in Athens. And here's a man whose name really resounds with that message of Paul preaching in, a, in his hometown. Well, he was the one that he actually then uh, wrote um, directly to Marcus Aurelius and to Commodus and to refute this uh, accusation of atheism. So these sort of things were going on inside the church. People were spreading the gospel message still. People were standing up for the faith. And as well as that then... um, the heresies that were creeping in were being put down and we'll see that we're now going to see something on it and we'll talk about more about heresies again but what about internally and what all was happening now last, last week we, we looked at church meetings and we've seen how the structure of them uh, we read through Justin Martyr and we've seen how he described the structure of a, of a Christian assembly in the early time and it, you know it's still the same it's continued on and over the, that hundred years or so since last, we looked at last week's time period, not a lot has changed. Basically, the one major change has taken place, in, and that is that the, uh, the exposition of the, the Old Testament books has gradually been replaced by the New Testament writings. The epistles of Paul and the letters of the other apostles. They and the four Gospels. And now when someone stood up to preach, they tended to speak, to read and to speak from those. So that happened as well. And also by the middle of the time period that we were looking at, um, communion part of the service, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it was beginning to be separated away from the main service. The main service was open to everybody. It was open to uh, Christians, those who were catechumens looking towards being baptised, there were young Christians, and those who weren't Christians at all, they were invited to come. But when it came to communion, then that part of the service became more private. And of course, the church split at that point, and those who weren't Christians left. And that came to some of the problems that was, you know, people had this idea, some secret thing was going on about the eating of the body of Christ, there was flesh eating going on and things like that. That was one change that was taking place. Another was the, the change of baptism as well. 
And um, we're going to mention that again in a moment. But scripture was being sung and we sang basically two psalms tonight. And again, so this was something, scripture was being sung and prayed as well. And pieces of scripture, like um, we talk about at Christmas, particularly the Nunc Dimittis, you know, where Simeon says, Nor let us now thy servant depart in peace. Or the Magnificat, you know, Mary's song that we looked at at Christmas. And the angel's song, Glory and Excelsis. These are songs, these were parts of scripture that were, were being sung. Here's an example of an early Christian hymn. Hail cheerful light of his pure glory poured. Who is the immortal father? Heavenly, blessed, holiest of holies, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we are come to the sun's hour of rest. The lights of the evening round us shine. We sing the Father, Son and Holy Ghost divine. Worthiest art thou at all times to be sung. With undefiled tongue, Son of our God, giver of life alone. Therefore in all the world thy glories, Lord, we own. Simple hymns. So by and large though, the church meeting and the structure of them were the same today. What about the church meeting places? How had they changed? I said earlier that uh, there were no church buildings. Well there weren't. Because initially people met in their homes, in their houses, in their outdoors. But then around about 250 AD, uh, Septimus who was another Roman Empire, who was tolerant to the Christians, he encouraged them to build and so churches start to build as well and by the time of the Diocletian persecution about 50 years later Rome was said of about 40 churches and the next slide will show a, a picture of one of those churches that is found right in the far east of Syria on the river Euphrates sadly the site was being dug over recently by ISIS with bulldozers and all the rest of it and one archaeologist said it would have taken us a thousand years to execute what the ISIS did in a week um, but they destroyed of course much they were just looking for things and this is sort of a, a structure of an early church you see a meeting room, a central courtyard uh, an area for teaching like a Sunday school effect small side rooms and the baptistry and we'll have a look at the baptistry in more detail because it's interesting because what it does show us is that the shape of the baptistry is that it is like a, a bath literally like a bath and in the early church, by the year 250, there, there wasn't really infant baptism. Baptism was by believers being immersed, such as we practice today. Now, infant baptism was beginning to creep in around about that time and following it. But at this stage, this was it. And it could be one or two years from once you confessed your trust, once you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, once you trusted in him, you became a catechumen. And it could be for a year that you were taught about Christian things and you were instructed in God's word before you were baptised. And baptised was a public thing, and it was done on a profession of faith, but it was done publicly to other Christians. It wasn't done to the wider population. So it was a, a separate rite as well, uh, a bit like the communion was. So that happened. But changes also were taking place with church leadership and in the early church there was a heavy influence in, of Judaism and uh, the practice of Judaism and the synagogue worship can, it influenced almost and it, because it became an appeal to human nature and, and people looked to leaders 
And so Judaism had its priestly and its Levite group and you know, so they had those who were responsible particularly for one aspect of the worship and others were responsible for the practical details. And so uh, there became a development of really within the church a division between the ordinary church member and those in leadership. Ignatius, we said last week, was responsible a little bit for that in the sense that he was seemed in the weight of his letters to be putting uh, emphasis on the importance of the, the men who were leading the church, the bishops in the church, and he said, don't do anything without them, and so on. And then what happened was, like Arrhenius, when he moved to Leon and became the bishop there, he then planted churches. There was church planted in the immediate area around in, in France, spread out from Leon. But the church in Leon became responsible for the smaller churches that they planted. And so there became this idea that the, the guy in Leon, the bishop in Leon, was more important than the leaders, the bishops in these small churches. So he became the sort of the area bishop and the others became the local bishops. And so this gradually a clerical order arose within the church. And then eventually, around about 250 at the same time as churches, leaders who up to this stage basically were ordinary men who had to work at ordinary jobs to make a living and spend their time and sacrificially for working for their church. Now they were paid for the church. So things were changing and we'll see more again in subsequent weeks. What about scripture itself? What about the canon of scripture? Well, last week we we mentioned about how it took a long time for the scriptures that we know them as our Bible today became to be accepted. And we will see this in more detail the next time when we look at some of the councils. But I want to mention just briefly tonight two of the earliest manuscripts that are known. Uh, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanicus. Uh, now these two, the Sinaiticus is the oldest manuscript. It dates from around about the time, the end of our time, around about 330, 350, that sort of time frame. So, and so the other ones just a few years after that. And it appears probable that, that these were manuscripts that were being put together specifically to bring scripture that was recognised into one book. Up to now, that you'd maybe had a book here and a book there, and it would have had wee scraps of different. Uh, epistles, different letters in them, different gospels in them. But under Constantine there seems to be a push to, to get scripture back again. Remember that all, so many had been destroyed under Diocletian. And now under Constantine there seems to be this push to get people to put it all together in a structured form and showing the books that by this stage were recognised and in fact that Codex Sinaiticus, it contains all of our New Testament, it contains the Greek Old Testament, and it contains a couple of other books, the Shepherd of Hermes that I mentioned, and the Epistle of Barnabas, but they're all in there. It's spread over a number of volumes over four different uh, museums around Western Europe. So, uh, while that was going on, Another man in Oregon, he was an important man, he, he uh, wrote a lot. And he actually got down and for 28 years he spent time looking at four translations of a whole lot of the New Testament. 
He looked at the original Hebrew, he looked at the Greek translation of the Hebrew, he looked at the Greek Septuagint, and he wrote out a six-column Bible with all those different versions in it. There's one for you. He learned, he had to learn Hebrew to do it. The Greek, he knew, and then he put that along with the Septuagint, the Old Testament. So men worked hard at getting the scripture for us, just as they did later, as we've seen in the earlier ministry of our pastor, talking about how we got our Bible today. So that was what was happening with the actual canon of scripture. And I also mentioned last week, and with this I finished, I mentioned last week about creed and scripture. And this particular is the, the simplest form of the Apostles' Creed, which again came into being around about this time. There's no set time for it. It's developed over a number of years. It's a few hundred years before the final Apostles' Creed, around about 750, that we know uh, came into being. And we'll be looking at this in more detail in in further week as well. And a a number of Pharisees had crept into the church. And so it was really important that the creeds helped us get a clear and a sharp grasp on correct theological Christian doctrine in a way that we could easily understand them. And one of the ways to do that was to learn it and to see in sharp, almost bullet point points about the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and all that was involved in the gospel message as well. And you know, creeds have always been about in a, in a slightly different way. Almost like, you know, when, when Jesus asked Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? Or he asked the disciples, Peter answered in behalf of the disciples, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's almost a creedal statement, isn't it? When Paul and Silas were asked by the, the, the Philippian jailer, uh, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What did the answer come back? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Today people still need to recognise that they need to ask that same question. What must I do to be saved? They need to see that they need to believe in Jesus. We need still to tell people that they need to believe in Jesus and to tell it to others. This morning from the, the message the pastor shared with us from Philippians the need to stand firm in the Lord. Well surely tonight we've seen something of people who did stand firm in the Lord. We've seen how unity was important. And we've seen the final third point of the pastors was to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. How important was that these people rejoiced in the Lord. They went to their death, many singing and praising God. They were rejoicing even in the ultimate suffering that were taking place. You know, when we feel hard done by the things that are going on when maybe we're getting it in work because we're a Christian or whatever. Let's think about the example of these men and women that we've thought about tonight. And there were hundreds of others. Hundreds of others. Think of their example. And let us stand firm for our faith. Let us continue to spread the gospel and tell people you need to trust in Christ. 
and help us to rejoice always. Going to close with singing in Christ alone.